You're listening to KKUP Cupertino 91.5 FM here in the Bay Area and beyond the Bay at kkup.org where we stream live all the time. It's Wednesday night and 8 o'clock. That means you're listening to Poetry Radio. I'm your host, Rochelle Escamilla, a.k.a. Poetita. This is the longest running poetry radio show in the United States. Um, I'm really excited about tonight's show. It's a pre-recorded show with uh, Marcelo Hernandez Castillo and Nathan Xavier Osorio. But before we get there, I'm going to change the tone of the music and play you some Latin, Cuban. What are you, what are you still doing here, Fly? Oh, I've got I've got a really uh, special guest in the house tonight. Actually, I should put you on the mic. Why don't you pull the mic? So I <laughs> he just Why he just put us he put us on he put us on last bye bye fly. So um so Arlene, what's your last name? Reyes. Reyes. Arlene and I collided with each other like two stars in the universe. It's quite beautiful. Yeah, and Arlene is um uh, you're you're in theater. You were in theater in New York. Performing art, um, all of it, just. I just was born to meet you, girl. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm turning my <laughs> and I'm turning my first book into a play. And we were at uh, some gig in Monterey, and we just started talking. And then now we're working together. So it's it's been, n- it's been a great friendship in the making. I know, and we're gonna launch a show together. Yes. Uh, the show is gonna be called Bad Latinas. Because somos mal, bien malas, bien locas. All right, well, stay tuned for that. Um, but for now, I'm going to play you some music. This is La Dame Blanche. I've been on it for a while. You guys know, if you've been listening, you know that this is what I'm playing. So here you go. Uh, I'll be back with an interview or actually a reading by Marcelo Hernandez Castillo. So here we go. First, La Dame Blanche. <laughs> Tipo uma avalanche Isso aqui é rincão e latam blanche Isso aqui é pimenta e dendê Se o swing perder vou pedir revanche Eu tenho plano na mente, já dei o pote Nessa flauta envolvente, MC Fiote Se eu aceita que dói menos é sem choro Tamo querendo mais ouro, encheu o pote Uh, abalou, abalou A chapa esquentou, faz calor, faz calor Uh, badalou, badalou O amor pela cor do valor, do valor Que ousadia tocar nosso dreadlock Se não tiver perdido Missão vai tomar um choque Preto brasileiro, sul-americano Tipo africano, corpo deslaque Uau, ei Lara se buena pa eso Buena pa eso, buena pa eso Ei, Lara se buena pa eso Buena pa eso, buena pa eso Ei, Lara se buena pa eso Buena pa eso, buena pa eso Ei, Lara se buena pa eso Buena pa eso, buena pa eso Logo, 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 Opa como tú, me la preocupa nadie nada que los lujos dime quién son tú. El bururú, africano tiene solamente a tiricu, a pululú, a pululú. Buena, 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 buena pa' la niña sincera, buena pa' los curis de la arena, pa' que no se olvide con los de la bisabuela. Buena, ese pelo blanco que brilla en la claridad, esos ojos negros y esa nariz capilada, eres caderúa con la naquita parada. Tu abuelita donde está Vinan en mi barco que todita la tema El que no tiene de Congo tiene de Santa Cara Martinica Fica, Congo Alemán Franco Marroca, Ruso Colombia Colón África, Chino Puerto Rico Buena pa eso, buena pa eso, buena pa eso. Ey, Lara se buena pa eso, buena pa eso, buena pa eso. Ey, Lara se buena pa eso, buena pa eso, buena pa eso. Ey, Lara se buena pa eso, buena pa eso, buena pa eso. Ey, Lara se buena pa eso, buena pa eso, buena pa eso. Ey, Lara se buena pa eso, buena pa eso. All right, so this is Poetry Radio. Tonight's show is with uh, Marcelo Hernandez Castillo. 
uh, who is a poet, essayist, translator, and immigration advocate. He earned a BA at Sacramento State University and is the first undocumented student to earn an MFA at the University of Michigan. In this pre-recorded reading, Marcelo is reading from and discussing his groundbreaking debut novel, Children of the Land. He's in conversation with uh, Nathan Xavier Osorio, who is also a poet and an essayist and also a good friend and really an amazing person. Uh, this interview was recorded on February 11th, 2020 at Bookshop Santa Cruz. Uh, please remember that the views and opinions expressed in this program or on the station do not necessarily represent the views and opinions of the staff and management of KKUP. So here we go. Um, Marcelo Hernandez Castillo talking about and reading from his debut novel, Children of the Land. Here we go. Boy, yeah. uh, I'm really, really honored to be here to uh, present um, my book and talk about a little bit about um, the concerns that are going on in the book, some of the arguments that I make in the book, and some of the ideas that I kind of explore with memory, with uh, migration, with geopolitical borders, and um, this idea of moving back and forth between the borders. So I'm just going to read a few a few excerpts um, from the book because it's set up to be uh, it's broken up in, uh, it's broken up into ways that facilitate that um, with these movements that I like to call them. And this first part um, takes place. It's, it's, it's more of just a, 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 it takes place after my father's immigration interview was denied in Ciudad Juarez for, um, he had returned to Juarez, uh, he, had, he actually got deported in 2003, thank you. And, um, can you already hear me okay? He got deported in 2003, and for once he spent his entire, for once in his life we said, okay, we're gonna follow the rules now. We're going to uh, do what we are told. Because um, we were tired of just, uh, we were tired of not, we're tired of losing, you know, and we thought that by following the rules there would be a different outcome. Um, so he did, and he waited 10 years uh, the 10-year ban in Mexico and went up for his immigration interview and um, was denied. Um, at which point my mother had to make the decision of should she continue to stay in the U.S. separated from him and with her children or uh, return to my father who uh, wasn't the best father and it was a very tense household while he was in the picture. And um, my mother joins us today in the audience. We have been doing this for a long time, moving back and forth. My family's roots felt like a sinewy thread that got thinner and thinner with each successive generation that stayed in the United States. I wonder what my children would think of Mexico. What would it mean to them, born in the US? Would they feel that tight rope tugging at them like I did? Would they too spend their lives trying to help someone cross, still trying to get somewhere? I wonder when we'd ever get there. I was always jealous of friends who were second or third generation immigrants because they could share their past with others. They all had vivid stories to tell about how their grandparents came and stayed to make a new life for themselves, and how their parents grew up speaking English and had real American jobs like working at McDonald's or a car wash. Mm. I had vivid stories too of Leon, about Mahulia and Jesus, my grandfather, before he died in the desert. But I never spoke of them. I couldn't share my lineage with others. 
I felt like I always had to stop at 1993 because for many years, I couldn't talk about what happened before 1993, before our crossing. I couldn't give myself permission to have a past, but I did have a past. Mm. We were still doing the same thing. I could track my family as far back as the 1700s on the mountain where the house of La Loma was built. My past was one that moved back and forth. And there we were at the same border town where Leon was deloused. Mm. The same border town where my tío Miguel was deloused. Mm. The same border town where Abba was deported in 2003. Mm. Abba would be opening his mouth for a physical, following the flashlight in the doctor's hand side to side squeezing his large fist for a blood test, shaking his head to the list of diseases on a piece of paper. I don't have any of those. 100 years after Leon's first crossing, we were still trying to cross, still moving in maddening helplessness, a revolving door without an exit. When I thought of the past, I thought of one of my favorite lines of poetry by Robert Hass. All the new thinking is about loss. In this, it resembles all the old thinking. I thought about what I had lost, what I continued to lose, and I realized it was the same thing we had been losing for centuries, the ability to say enough. Mm. Mm. Um, this references a practice called delousing that happened on the uh, U.S.-Mexico border in Juarez and other places, I believe, as well. Mm -hmm. Not many people are aware of it, but um, it's pretty common knowledge. Um, DDT. Um, where uh, uh, the U.S. government would uh, spray uh, toxic chemicals on immigrants as they entered into the country in order to quote unquote uh, disinfect them. Um, you know, in the rhetoric there is assuming that immigrants were, um, you know, the, the rhetoric of infestation, so on and so forth, was carried under that in the racist rhetoric of um, uh, the U.S. is clean and anything that isn't the U.S. isn't. And that was started around 1917. And my great-grandfather came uh, for the first time in 1916 and was back and forth about five times. So he, he had this, he had to go undergo this practice where you take off all your clothes, stand in the line naked, they spray, they spray you, and um, then they take your clothes and put them in these large industrial dryers. Um, and some people's shoes would like melt because of the dryers. Um, so they would have to walk across the bridge barefooted, which is where the stereotype that Mexicans didn't wear shoes came from. Um, and uh, that rhetoric still exists to the present because when you have to get a green card, you still have to go to a doctor. The doctor still has to examine you, give you a physical. And if you can't provide your shot records, they give you all of your shots, you know, all your vaccines over, um, even if you already have them. Um, so, the rhetoric is still is still all there. Um, you know, it's just been updated for the twenty first century. <laughs> so after the the the, the denial, uh, we had to make a difficult decision. I had to move back to my mother's house uh, to help her with that decision. Um, it was ultimately her decision to make, but we always wonder, you know, is this the right thing to do for her to return? Um, so I moved back to kind of, um, uh, once she made the decision to, to, to move out her stuff and, and prepare herself to return. Back in her house, I brushed my mother's hair, which was soft and thin. She started dyeing it for the first time. Maybe that's why it felt so light through my fingers. She always loved her gray hairs, said it made her look refined. 
dignified, but not anymore. We sat on her couch late at night watching a Spanish-dubbed Steven Seagal movie on Telemundo. Her arms were small, and I could feel her sharp bones angled at the softest parts of her. I rubbed oil in her hair and kept brushing as we both laughed at Seagal, those quick action camera angles and the infamous ponytail whipping back and forth. <laughs> the explosions in the background 20 years after the movie had been released seemed faded and uneventful, as if by now, in our dim room's Telemundo version, they were only pointing at fire and couldn't actually burn, as if they were only saying, bang, but were muted. And Seagal knew this. He was indifferent with his emotionless face, perhaps already aware during filming of the dim and fuzzy filter he would be seen through 20 years later in a dark room where a boy who was hardly a boy anymore was brushing his mother's hair. It was as if he knew that his voice would be replaced by the voice of a man speaking in a heavy Castilian Spanish who had difficulty expressing surprise when a bomb exploded in his ohs and ahs, which sounded more like soft moans. He didn't bother opening his mouth much to speak. She never had many knots in her hair, but I continued to brush. There was a defeat that was growing in the air with each week. It was exhaustion. It was easier to brush her hair than to tell her I would miss her. I knew she would never return. Could we be blamed for giving up? There was an abscess growing on her arm from a car accident. It looked like a golf ball on her wrist, and it forced her to become left-handed. I remembered her being mad at me as a teenager and saying, don't make me hit you with my good hand. <laughs> I left her. It didn't hurt when she hit me, but I had to pretend that it did. <laughs> yeah. What hurt most was the fact that she hit me, the fact that she couldn't hit me with her right, the fact that she had to adjust her body sideways to hit me with her left, and that I stood there unfazed, angry that I couldn't go out with my friends. The fact that it didn't hurt, but I cried nonetheless. She was hit by a drunk driver about was driving, and they were T-boned on the passenger side, her side. Apa walked away from the crash unharmed. The hood of the car sliced open the man's neck. The right side of her body was shattered. Apa said he saw the car coming in. Just before impact, he swerved left without thinking. I wonder how much time he had to choose which way to turn. His side or my side? It's funny how those things happen. How one person can walk away without a scratch while the other is nearly sliced to pieces. If the lights were on in that room, and if I were looking at Amma for the first time, I would notice the remnants of that accident, the scars running down her neck, and the ones on her shoulder where small pieces of glass were still tucked just beneath the skin and yet lodged too deep to extract, too large to dissolve into the rest of her. The largest scar ran down the length of her forearm where they opened her and replaced all the bones with metal. The metal would stay there, but the glass would not at least not all of it. The doctor said the shards would come out by themselves, unexpectedly, and years later, with minimal pain, <laughs> like a slow bullet traveling out of her, like a bullet in a film with an already outdated actor looking directly into the camera as he recites one offers like, I'm I imagine the glass 
making its uneventful entrance into the world two decades later, as if it were alive, squirming the way snakes do when they come out of the shell. Maybe it would be a lonely affair, no one there to see it except Allah, who would surely be confused at first, seeing something leave her body. Or maybe I would be there to witness this thing that's been part of my mother's body for so long, it could be mistaken for bone. I wouldn't know how to hold it if it fell in my hands. I would put it to my ear and listen. I would hold it to the light before giving it back to Mama so she could know what it was that hurt her every time she lifted her arm to hit me. Mm. And um, the, the, my book of poems, which is which I published first before, because um, I'm primarily a poet. You know, that's that's what I went to school for. That's what my interests are. Are um, and I turned to prose when I wasn't able to write poetry anymore um, because of just this depressive spell um, during this time that my mother was going to leave and like, preparing our family to separate. So um, uh, they're kind of both in conversation with each other and um, I guess this book did what this book couldn't. It was an extension of this book. Um, so I'll read one poem from this um, just to kind of give you context about the decisions we were making and um, the ultimate question is, you know, can somebody change? Can solitude change someone? Because my father was alone for 10 years over there, suddenly thrust without family. Um, so wondering what solitude does to a person. So before he reads um, a poem from his book, I'm going to take a break here. Uh, you're listening to KKUP Cupertino, 91.5 FM here in the Bay Area, beyond the Bay at kkup.org. Uh, tonight's show is pre-recorded with Marcelo Hernandez Castillo, who is a poet, essayist, translator, and immigration advocate. He earned a BA at Sacramento State University and is the first undocumented student to earn an MFA at the University of Michigan. Um, in this pre-recorded reading, Marcelo is reading from and discussing his groundbreaking debut novel, Children of the Land, and soon will be in conversation with Nathan Xavier Osorio, who is also a poet and an essayist. Um, this interview was pre-recorded on February 11th in 2020 at Bookshop Santa Cruz. And please remember that the views and opinions expressed on this program or on the station do not necessarily represent the views and opinions of the staff and management of KKUP. Really quick on the community calendar coming up in Monterey, actually next Saturday, Saturday, March 14th at 730, Nathan Xavier Osorio, along with Jose Luis Gutierrez, Hari Aluri, who's been on the show a couple of times, and myself will be reading at Old Capital Books in Monterey. That'll be at 7.30, Old Capital Books on March 14th. Uh, following the uh, reading, there's going to be a launch of a TV show that uh, actually Arlene and I are working on. So <laughs> I should turn on your mic. Um, Arlene and I are working on this TV show called Bad Latinas. Woo. <laughs> Because we are. See, we are. See, somos, and you know it, and you love it. <laughs> so it's going to be a TV show. We're getting a set together. We're going to get people together. There's going to be wine and lots of other stuff, and we're going to uh, talk. We're going to have a talk show, and that will be at 9.30 p.m. at the Mad Gleam Press Gallery in downtown Monterey. If you have any questions, just call us here at the station. Um, and before I send you to the break with some music, I'm going to... Uh, give you the the big KKUP sponsorship request. So KKUP Cupertino 91.5 FM is non-commercial radio staffed completely by volunteers and supported 100% by our listeners. We have provided an alternate source for music and information not readily available on, on other stations for over 40 years. By maintaining a separation from corporate backing, underwriting, or any other source of funding that might place demands on our programming, we're free to entertain and educate the listening community in a unique way. 
Every day we offer music ranging from comical to classical, reggae to barbershop, new age to oldies, and not to mention our amazing poetry radio show. If you find this station worth supporting, please become a member. You can do so online or you can give me a call here at the studio at 408-260-2999 or 831-480-1999. I'm going to play some more music and then we're going to come back to Marcelo Hernandez Castillo. So here we go. Here's some music for you. On a connu les colonies, l'anthropophage, économie, la félonie, la traite d'esclaves, la dette, le FMI, Bruno Jean-Marie. Si je cours, j'ai des raisons, les mêmes que les deux nègres maigres sous un avion. Avant c'était déjà grave de voir des fers qui entravent paysage de Gorée. Gorée. Maison des esclaves, cave sans amour, sans retour, ni recours, sans cours de cassation, sans oreille pour entendre ce cours. Où sont passés les baobabs et les hordes de gosses dans cette terre de négoce où ne vivent que les big boss Rentabilité, instabilité, imbécilité n'ont fait qu'augmenter les taux de mortalité. Ce sont des larmes qui coulent dans nos artères, psychose séculaire, j'ai peur quand j'entends charter. Parfois je rêve de mettre un gun dans un paquet de chips, de braquer la banque mondiale pour tout donner au townships. C'est trop, trop complexe, où sont les droits de l'homme L'homeless, l'homeless, homeless, zigzag et slalom, donc shalom à tous les gens qui ont connu la haine, aux enfants de Bohème, Solar, Mama de Cohen. En soliloque, je développe des antidotes non-stop. Yeah. On a connu les colonies Par le passé, il y a beaucoup d'actes qui nous ont millénaires Frères et sœurs, c'est l'heure du pacte pour ce millénaire L'enfer gère, la terre mère, Lucifer et Faust Entrent dans leur tête dans le but de refaire l'Holocauste j'ai vu des mecs parler de haine à la tribune d'une façon scientifique Élimination par l'urne, donc je donne la paix à paix. Ceux qui me suivent dans l'OPA, face à la barbarie Cela s'en met à culpa Si on est là, c'est pour toujours pousser l'amour Pour que nos parcours chaque jour coupent la route au vautour Et va pas croire cette fois que ce sont des bavures Je t'assure, s'ils ont la haine, on a la bravoure Une petite fille vient de naître, elle s'appelle Melissa Et si j'opte pour le vote, c'est pour pas qu'elle vive ça La vie est belle, peut Petite, petite. Malgré ces quelques, quelques pites, pites, fin de chapitre Pour tous les gosses dès l'âge du pupitre Daisy 
And I said, hello, Dinsey. And she said, hello. And he bent over the sink with his palms in his face. And he, the only tunnel of song for miles in any direction, the white belt, Daisy, and Daisy, and Daisy. And after it's over, we know we have both become men. Him for the beating, and me for taking the beating. I love you, Daisy. My father's hands will love a man at the first sign of weakness. I am weak, therefore I gather that he loves me. Mm. Their suffering was our suffering. They peeled the skin off a lamb which was still breathing. I remember its cry, but not the viria we made from it. His hands were two doves courting the lamb, which was also a dove in its thrashing. They cut through the air like ghosts. They were large and capable of great things. I always came when they called. They always had peaches to put in my mouth.
I had the luxury of being misinterpreted in poems, if that makes sense. And I guess I, I, I couldn't, I, I didn't, I felt like I didn't have that privilege or luxury anymore to be misinterpreted. And so if I was going to write poetry, it was going to be in that way that would be easily um, interpreted in various ways depending on the reader. I wanted a more specific, um, uh, ex specific experience to, you know, trans to turn to put onto the page. So that was in um, in the essay in, the, in prose. Yeah, um, I'm really interested in that um, that like not will not wanting to risk misrepresentation and, and to make the images and maybe the experience as concrete as possible. Um, you know, in your book, I'm really I'm really fascinated with the relationship between architecture and memory. You build in during the in the text, you build two houses in quite detail, like quite a, a lot of detail. Uh, one is the um, the home that your father's building um, as a means to kind of convince your mother to come back yeah. and then to Zacatecas. Yeah. Um, and that home is built, it's like fueled by like um, a machismo and yeah. an isolation. Yeah. And then you have um, almost side by side that representation, another like very concrete representation of a home that no longer is, but that's like the the ancestor, ancestral home of your mother, La Loma, which you described an overwhelming detail and, and it feels so vivid despite that home being in ruin. Yeah. So I'm kind of curious about like how, if you can bring us to that moment of, of, of trying to rebuild a physical structure textually and imbuing it with so much you know, feeling and family history, um, like what that experience was like as a writer. Yeah, well, I guess at the center of that is permanence. Um, as I mentioned uh, before beginning, before reading, this impermanence that kind of um, was the underlying uh, commonality to my experience, my mother's experience, my family's experience, that we never had an opportunity to stop. We've never had an opportunity to settle. You know, continually moving houses, continually uh, switching jobs. Um, you know, uh, I, I would start a job and then uh, get laid off because the, um, the green card that I used would have expired and so on and so forth. So this, this idea of impermanence of something not solid, something not lasting, um, was very uh, embedded into kind of our consciousness. And it made me really realize how important that house in the ranch that my ancestors built and had been present for about 300 years, that it was built out of thick Adobe walls, um, and it was in ruins, but it was an homage towards the future because they were building something to stay. They, I mean, the U.S. existed at that time, it didn't exist at the U.S. I mean, I traced my family's origins back to the 1700s. Um, so there was something north of there, but for the, in their imagination, it, in their imaginations, it was uh, it was something worth staying for, and it was my great great grandfather Leon who was the first one to, to 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 come. So that permanence, I think, also translated into my father's house because there was a lot of um, a lot of tension back and forth with uh, with him blowing all of the money he inherited from his father when his father died, my grandfather building this house for himself that had ceilings probably like as high as these beams, and building um, a countertop that had footings, that had like 10 foot footings into the earth. And he, he would brag, like you could drive a truck on top of this counter. I'm like, okay, yes, but why? <laughs> um, and it was, it, was, it was just everything exaggerated on this, uh, uh, flourishing like this, this kind of machismo, um, and I always thought, why would you build such a big house if you're going to be by yourself, right? But in his mind, he did. Uh, he built it so that he could convince us to return, and um, you know, in building it that way, in building a house uh, with ten foot footings for a kitchen countertop. Um, ensured that he was looking, he, he did something that I wasn't able to do at the time. 
he was trying to paint that permanence, that permanency. Um, and if you read the book, you know, it, it, uh, towards the end, there's a monkey wrench thrown into that way because that that permanency is, is kind of rattled. But um, you know, what else did we have other than um, our physical bodies? Yeah, that's that's really great. I mean, I, it's interesting hearing you kind of um, talk about how like that was a way of him establishing some kind of permanence and you uh, identifying as not being able to. But as I was reading that particular passage, I kind of wondered about the book itself being a form of permanence and, and that being maybe your own structure that you're building to kind of like establish a hereness. Maybe. Yeah, I mean, uh, if, if I can be frank, like this book sucked to write. <laughs> it was uh, a terrible, turbulent, tumultuous um, two years that uh, it took me to write um, because I was going through the aftermath of, of of this family situation. Um, and while I was working on it, um, I also had a son that was, uh, that, that, that um, came um, when he was born. And I suddenly had to think about, you know, will he, and I, and I say that in, in the, what I just read, but um, when I wrote that, he hadn't been born yet. And so I was imagining uh, what my son will be like in terms of uh, in terms of movement in his in his you know internal geography and where he would call home and how he would see himself in relation to a country that um, both distanced itself from us but also pulled us at the same time. What are his uh, cues? looking backwards. Um, will he be the one to finally just stop moving, to settle, to um, not have these, uh, adopt these behaviors of survival that we've had to, even even siblings of mine who did have green, who, who, who had permanent residency status, who were born here or were naturalized, um, nonetheless still had those behaviors. So um, for me, Writing the book, a sucked, but um, I got it out of me. Like I, I uh, my next project, I guess um, I'm excited for it to announce itself. What it will be, maybe a book of poems, a novel, another nonfiction piece. But um, I'm not as tied to genre anymore, and so the book kind of was a way of. Um, of establishing that kind of permanency yeah. um, and put it on the record. Yeah, and, I, and I love this tension that I'm, I'm starting to see now as I'm hearing you talk um, between permanency and maybe um, being ephemeral or kind of existing and um, perhaps uh, not in one place but in multiple places at once. And, and you, you, you mentioned it a bit in your reading about how the book is constructed not around fixed chapters or parts but um, through movements. And I was wondering if you could share us a little bit about the function of this word movement um, as an organizing principle in this in this memoir. Yeah, well, I mean, there's there's five main chapters, and they're really long. I mean, one of them um, spans like a quarter of the book. Uh, and being the poet that I am, it was very difficult to sustain attention for for that long, right? Um, without feeling like I was just rambling. Um, and so for me. The hour past wasn't just uh, you know relevant to our present. That's everybody's case, right? We're all living in the consequences of our recent past and in the decisions of our parents and the decisions that our grandparents made. Had our great grandfather not gone to that one bar, you know, none of you know, none of this would have happened. You wouldn't have existed. Things like that. But um, a closer kinship to the relationship between the past and the present in that. Um, it wasn't behind me, but in front of me. Um, you know, uh, filtering my present through all of the decisions of the past. Um, and the structure of the book kind of reflects that because the long essays are all mostly in the present, relative present within the last like five years or so, six years. 
and these movements that kind of uh, punctuate the, the book um, are all distant memories of the farther past. My great-grandparents' um, uh, experiences, my grandparents, my parents, and even my young, early childhood arriving to the country and learning English for the first time, um, so on and so forth. So um, those are where I was able to uh, extend my, uh, uh, my, my poetic aesthetics uh, and really play with form and memory. Because I have a terrible memory. I don't know about um, you all, but uh, you know, I've put things away and cannot retrieve them. You know, as much as I would. I don't remember being 10, I don't remember being 12, I don't remember being seven. I don't know what seven feels like. I don't remember being eight. Um, and so I had to rely on my wife, who we've been together since like our junior year in high school, so for like 15 years. And over the years, I have told her things about me, then forgotten them, and so she kind of uh, had to reconstruct my past and is like a living, breathing, walking bolt of like my memories. <laughs> um, more so than anybody else because I confided in her things that I probably wouldn't talk in even like a family setting, right? Well, I'm gonna ask you one last question um, um, before I open it up to the Q&A. And I'm so grateful for you, you know, being patient and like answering these questions. Um, Marcelo and I have, been, um, have an interview coming out later this week, so I've been picking his brain for um, a couple of months now, so um, so this will be my last question. Um, and I, and in your book, you have this really elegant and and really striking um, few uh, movements on um, the interview process and 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 how it's how it's you know pervasive and, and revealing and 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 um, and, I, and and it's made me think so much about like what do we do when we're asking people questions, especially in maybe more performative environments like these. Um, and I realize you you know what if I, I kind of like try to flip that around? And I just wanted to ask you like, what's one question after you know these past few months of like book press that you've been doing, and, and that I'm sure you'll continue to do as you continue to work on this tour? What's one question about your experience working on this memoir that you haven't been asked, but that you wish you you were asked? Uh, uh, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the question that came up, that actually came up yesterday, uh, so um, it has been asked now, <laughs> it kind of caught me off guard, is, um, you know, uh, how, did it, how did me writing this uh, now make a bridge between my son and my father? Because uh, they have a relationship that I am excluded from. Um, you know, I've had, I have a picture of them, like him really, really little, um, he's two now, um, and, but he was a few months old and my father had, um, again, not, I, mean, I don't want to spoil it, but, um, uh, again, actually to that, it's not a spoiler because, uh, I was not concerned with details in this book. Details were secondary. It was the emotional resonances that I was after and how those made me feel and the effects of it afterwards. You know, uh, details aren't important. Um, the spectacularization of those details is not important. I wasn't interested in that. Although perhaps, you know, um, my, my publishers might have been, I really resisted that. And so, um, so he, you know, uh, instead I would like to focus on the, on, again, that inward geography of, of emotions. Um, so my father was able to return, um, and he had my child, and I f suddenly felt, uh, you know, that exclusion between, uh, that exclusion that I had, and uh, relationship between them. And this happens with grandparents and grandchildren all the time, right? They have something special that, that, um, that their children doesn't, just didn't partake. But it really made me realize, now being a father, just how either he could have been, or maybe in fact was, but those stories weren't related to me. You know, I might have a colored picture of him because of the things that I remember, but I don't remember being a few months old, so maybe this is how he held me. 
I mean, I'm just going to shoot one out there. Um, how how uh, are you familiar with Nepantla and Anzaldúa's? Yeah, yeah. Uh, has that did that come into play? I just keep feeling it all over and over again. This impermanence, this building of culture on top of structure, structural bridge that doesn't exist for us as as Chicanx people or as uh, Latin Latino people in the U.S. And can you talk about if that had any influence on your work? Yeah, I mean, uh, it, it, it certainly has. Your question was about Anzaldúa's work. Um, and this idea of the butler and um, uh, the in betweenness that Anzaldúa describes of the borderlands as a landscape of uh, mestizaje, um, of like a mixture of uh, not only cultures but ideas, and um, you know I think she is trying to. Uh, uh, make something as, as, to have as much weight as the mountains that are like in her landscape, that have as much physical weight as that. Um, and you know, being a woman of color, being queer, um, and uh, I think it really uh, allowed her to see those, um, those power dynamics at play. Um, uh, so yeah, I think to answer your question, yeah, she was very much always on my mind. Um, yeah, I'm judging the Anzaldúa Prize. Uh, <laughs> Are you really? Yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> nice. I was just really excited about that. <laughs> um, it just really honored me, though. So we named after her. Any other questions? Yes. separate theme that runs throughout um, and it ends on that because um, I always feel like it's easier to confess to strangers than to confess to people that I know no. um, which is why I love Twitter because it's like a <laughs> it's like a confession box and if you read if, if, you know, in chapter two of the, my chapter on allegiance I treat it as such and talk about that um, but also talk about how aware I've always been of presence um, one refrain that gets um, tossed around throughout the entire book is prove her presence. We are, um, we were supposed to find ways to prove that we had been here for a certain amount of years. Mm. So we were combing through mountains of papers for receipts, for mm. check stubs, rent, or receipts, all that. Um, so there's that weight looming above us, but also uh, you know the weight of almost like a surveillance state mm. of always being watched. Mm. It opens with um, an ice rink that happened in my house when I was 15, and um, you know after they had left, uh, they didn't take us, but after they left, it was almost like a warning, like we'll be in touch. Um, mm. That weight kind of never left, and towards the end, it's manifested into an actual weight because. Um, after a bunch of stuff happened, as we'll, as we'll read um, in the book, uh, I felt like I wanted to punish myself um, for things that didn't go, for things, for the misfortunes of my family. As if, if I could punish myself um, and take the, the heat for, the, for it, that they would go away, that they would be resolved, that their effects would be lessened. So, yeah, I mean, I, I deprived myself uh, in towards the later stages of writing the book, and the uh, epilogue uh, chronicles those last years, you know, I, I, um, 
I, I was drinking heavily and I, I, I started to then just deprive myself slowly of everything that gave me pleasure. Um, and, uh, and so I, I think I lost like 80 pounds in a year. Um, uh, and that, physic, that, that physicalness uh, of, of presence, um, I think I've always thought about that. One of my favorite poems but is by Mark Strand. Um, keeping things whole. Um, it's a very short poem um, about your body moving into the space, into the empty space between, uh, into the empty space in front of you. So thank you for picking on that. Yeah, mm -hmm. um, yeah I think, uh, oh, maybe just one more, and then we can, yeah. as we're talking, we're thinking maybe two minutes ahead in the future of how we're going to be seen by saying this, what's gonna be the perception, what's gonna be the effect of saying this and all that. Um, but for me, it was very specific. Uh, it, was in, it was intentional, uh, it was an intentional manner of trying to control what people knew about me, how much they knew about me, and what I could, uh, what, how I could present myself to others. Um, I was very cautious of any information that could reveal my status. Um, so things were coded that, that might have revealed that, like speaking Spanish in a specific way or listening to this kind of music. This was like a much earlier time before this more, uh, this movement of being out and proud of, um, uh, that kind of swept after the late 2010s, or the, in the late in the 2010s, it began with like the protests of 2006 uh, here in California, mm. where people started to like be proud and not have to hide their status. Um, but for me, uh, those behaviors that I picked up that were ingrained into me as a child, like being a, a second grader and having to. Uh, cover your state tests uh, with all of your hands, looking to see if they're going to ask for a social. A second grader should not have to be worried about that, right? Um, I, I talk about the book, always driving you know, on the freeway at exactly between 67 and 69, or 67 and 70 miles an hour, um, and continually looking down at the meter because to be pulled over was, was potentially, you know, was a potential deportation. So I'm not sure if those behaviors are ever gonna go away. I think that's me now. Like, I don't know what I would have been or who I would have been. So all I'm left with is what I know now. And potentially, uh, you know, being undocumented isn't an identity, but uh, it, it, it informs so much of my behavior and identity. That, it, that um, now, you know, the anxiety uh, uh, that I deal with, there are all roots from that uh, unceasing um, surveillance, you know. You're listening to KKUP Cupertino, 91.5 FM here in the Bay Area and beyond the Bay at kkup.org. That was an interview with Marcelo Hernandez Castillo and Nathan Xavier Osorio. Uh, thanks for listening. I'll be back next week with more poetry. I'm going to play you out with some music. Have a great night. Uh, tune in next week for more poetry. 8, 8 p.m. Right here. <laughs> All right. All right. Here you go. Bye. Thank you.
Ils étaient rencontrés sur les bancs de l'école En tourneur de col, de maths ou un cours d'espagnol C'était une fille fun, fanat de football Lui ne craignait pas les balles, c'était le goal Ce qu'il lui promettait c'était des balades en corvette Pour l'instant en survette, il volait des mobilettes Mais entre eux c'était toujours complicité Escale sur un piédestal, un rêve délimité S'il devenait triangle, elle serait rectangle La belle et le bad boy, le triangle rectangle C'est comme passer de Jodassin à Jodessi Un vrai truc de ouf, style pur clip de R&B Elle vit le grand amour, amour qui commence dans la course Poursuit dans les tours et rime toujours avec toujours Mais le contexte est plus fort que le concept Son mec se jette dans des flammes et il se lave avec Les sous-ensembles dans les grands ensembles s'assemblent La belle et le bad boy Les sous-ensembles dans les grands ensembles s'assemblent La belle et le bad boy Les sous-ensembles dans les grands ensembles s'assemblent La belle et le bad boy Les sous-ensembles dans les grands ensembles s'assemblent You are listening to KKUP Cupertino 91.5 FM on your radio dial, kkup.org, streaming online, anywhere. This is Nightbird Susie here with you this evening for some good jazz music, but I'm going to start you out with It's Only a Paper Moon. It's only a paper moon Sailing over cardboard sea But it wouldn't be make-believe If you believed in me And it's only a canvas sky 